Last week we talked about, gave a sort of an introduction to the book of John. We talked about how that the glory of God that John is talking about in his own gospel is the glory that was from the creation. He begins his gospel that way in John 1, 1, 2, and 3. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now the greatest authority for people to live the Christian life and expect to have salvation and go to heaven is the word of God. There's nothing any greater than that. And John's going to be constantly emphasizing that throughout his gospel. Let's look at this. Welcome to our second lesson, John, the gospel of God's glory. Last week, you remember during our address that we spoke of some of the saddest verses in all the Bible. That first one there, Genesis 6, 6, is when the world had grown so corrupt that God looked down upon it, and the Bible says that God was sorry that he made man. Isn't that a sad verse? King James Version said God repented. Of course, God doesn't repent of anything. But the better, kind of, the better rendition of it is God regretted that he had made man. But not only that, then coming later here, in Ezekiel 10 and verse 18, also confirmed by Matthew 23, the 23rd chapter, we have where Israel went away from God. Their sins separated them from the living God. And the Bible says here it was so bad in Israel that we became so wicked with idolatry that the Spirit of God departed from the temple in Ezekiel. Well, we, we talked about in Haggai, how that they rebuilt the temple, God's glory came back for a while. But in about 500 years, when Jesus came, it was corrupt again. And Jesus said in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, in verse 38, that the Spirit of God had departed from the temple again. That's another sad verse, isn't it? God regretted that he created man way back in those early ages. Then he had to depart from the temple for, uh, of Israel uh, back 500 years before Jesus came. And then when Jesus came, the temple was so corrupt they made it a den of thieves that Jesus said God has deserted it again. But we all have hope. John 1 and verse 11 says, in spite of, uh, in, when he had come and the temple was so corrupt that he came to his own and his own received him not. But now we don't want to quit on these said verses because it's not all of that. <clears throat> John says, there remains. In spite of the fact that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and had by the time this writing, in spite of the fact that God had departed from the temple and left them deserted because of their idolatry and all of their sin, he says a few are going to remain faithful in spite of the fact that some of them had departed. So John, in his gospel, as we'll be talking about throughout, but he starts out here in the very beginning showing the immeasurable love of God and also the overflowing grace of God, the fullness of grace, he says, and the great salvation. So then when we think about this, we are believers, are we not? And that's why we're here tonight. We do not come to church on the first day of the week simply because it's a command, though it is. 
We come to church on the first day of the week because we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And we're here tonight in this small group for this study of the book of John, just like they came to the early service, because we have a hunger and a thirst for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're here for that purpose. There will always be, regardless of all of these sad scriptures, all of the times that God had to depart. Romans 1 says time and again, they began to be so corrupt that God gave them up. But in spite of them, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, there's going to be a few that will find the way. And Isaiah, uh, Isaiah said so in Isaiah 10, 22. He said, though the children of Israel be as sand of the sea, yet there will be a remnant that will be saved. You know, the Lord promised Abraham way back in the beginning that his seed would be like the sand by the seaside. But that didn't mean that everyone born of the flesh was going to be a child of God. Jesus pointed out that true children of God are those who believe like Abraham did. So they may be like the sand of the seashore, but there's only going to be some of them, that's the believers that are going to be saved. And Paul quoted Isaiah here in Romans uh, 11 and verse 5, where he said, as Isaiah said, a remnant shall be saved. Thank God we're here tonight because we hope to be in that remnant, that we believe the Bible as he so said. Not only this, Jesus said there would be a remnant also in Matthew, the seventh chapter in verse 14. He's talking about a wide gate and a broad way, but he says there, enter in at the straight gate. Narrow is the way, he says, that leads unto life. We're here tonight because we want to walk that narrow way. They told me to look this way. So John said so. Not only did Jesus say so, not only did Isaiah prophesy so, but John said so, one in verse two, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name. That simply means that they believe that he's the son of God. They believe in the authority of Jesus Christ. You can't get any better in higher authority than being the son of God. And to these who believe in his name, who believe that he was the son of God, he gave the right to become the sons of God. Now this is going to get a little crosswise to some of the Sanhedrin and some of the Jewish people. Let's notice. Those who accepted him as the son of God would be the remnant of believers. John 8, 36. So if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. There were people running around claiming to be messiahs. The Sanhedrin, of course, were set in their ways. They didn't have any spirituality about them as, Nic as we see with Nicodemus when we get there. But the remnant believing children of God is not determined by family ancestry. You see, they thought it was. They thought that really the, you had to be a child of Abraham to be a child of God, to be in the family of God. But John is going to show here this isn't true. Because you can be a descendant of Abraham and go into idolatry as they did. To be a child of God, you've got to believe the word of God. Notice in 113, he says, these people, this remnant, these believers are those who are born not of blood, 
but of God. In other words, they're not descendants of Abraham necessarily. They could be if they were believers. But it's not because of the flesh. It's not because you have a genealogy going back to Abraham that you can prove that you're a Hebrew of Hebrews, as Paul said he was. Paul was wrong, though he said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So then it's born not of blood. Now notice it says born, but not of fleshly lineage, but born of God. And he's going to show us when we get to Nicodemus exactly what he's talking about. Neither can human will determine the children of God. You can't just make up your mind that just because you belong to this or that, because you belong to some denominational creed, that that guarantees you the right to heaven. And just because they were descendants of Abraham didn't guarantee them they were children of God. There's going to be a great argument about that when we get to John the 8th chapter, if we ever get there. And 113, who were born not of blood, now there we have added, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. All of the willpower in the Hebrew nation could not make them children of God just because they were the lineage of Abraham. A wrong belief cannot be made acceptable with God by human will. It doesn't make any difference how long the creed has been written on a book, maybe several hundred years. It doesn't make any difference how cherished the belief is to you. It doesn't make any difference about all of your relatives and where they are and the situation they're in in some religious order. If you're not born of God, you cannot resist God's will with your own will and make God accept it. That's what he's talking about. You've got to understand how strong the will was in the Hebrew nation that they were the children of God. They were the elite. They were the chosen. And of course, if they were believers, that's true. But you cannot even, when becoming a believer, God respects your freedom of choice. And you can still choose at some place, like they did, Israel, to worship an idol or go astray in some way and then be, of course, not right with God. A wrong belief cannot be made acceptable with God by human will, Romans 8.33, because Paul says, it is God that justifies. And that's the bottom line tonight. We cannot be justified by some long religious order that's been here for years. We cannot quote any source other than the Bible as proving that we're children of God. It is God that justifies. And the way he justifies is through his word. And John will be pointing out, now how, if you're justified by God, and you can't change God's will with your will, how did God reveal his will? Well, he says there, by becoming man, to know his suffering and impart grace and truth man to man. And that he says in verse 13, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 5.89 tells us too that, you know, though he were God, though he were Jesus and the Son of God, yet learned he things by the way he suffered, and he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who would obey him. God, because he's sinless and immaculate, doesn't know sin, doesn't know the pain of sin. He knows no pain. 
So how can he be just? How can he just people in the flesh who are sinners and know the pain of sin and all? The Bible says he loved us so much that somewhere in heaven that there was a decision made that he would come put up on human flesh, live and die as a human being, so he would know your aches, my pains, and our, of course, all that goes with being tempted of sin. That's the only way God could do it. That's the way God did it, so that he could be a just God and save us with mercy and with grace as well as judgment by his word. By number two, another way is by direct revelation to his apostles. That's what he says in this next verse, see, verse 14. He says, he became flesh, lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Can anybody in here tell me, what John is probably talking about, how John and the other apostles saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Do what? Absolutely. The answer was he saw it when they were called up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew, the 17th chapter, was transfigured before them. And there in all that wonder, they saw Jesus' glory as going over on the other side. But not only that, we saw his glory because he was confirmed as the Son of God. How? By a voice from heaven that said what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye the Sanhedrin. Joe, don't shake your head, yes. (laughs) Don't hear the Sanhedrin. You hear Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is there another time that John the Baptist and others saw the glory of Jesus Christ? Can you name that one? Besides the Mount of Transfiguration. When was it? At his baptism. Somebody said at his baptism. What happened at his baptism? The Bible says the heavens opened, the form of a dove came down And John says, we saw his glory. John the Baptist saw the glory also and declared him to be the Son of God. Let's go on here a little bit. There is none other authority. The glory, notice he says, what kind of glory did you see? The glory as of the only Son of God. The only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now, why does he emphasize this? Because there were a lot of people running around claiming they could cast out devils. That's what Jesus said when they accused of him of being of, uh, the prince of devils when he was casting out devils. He said, if I cast them out by the devil, who do your sons cast them out by? There were a lot of false teachers running around claiming to be, of course, healers and so on. We even have that today. But it doesn't make any difference if you claim to be a healer. It doesn't make any difference what you will yourself to be in your particular belief. If it is not according to the Son of God's teaching, it cannot be true. So then, full of grace and full of truth. He's the only Son. First thing I want to mention is the only Son. 
Moses, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, read the second chapter, was only a servant of God. He was a servant in the house of God. But he says Jesus was the son of God. And so we have this emphasize here because they still were walking under the Old Testament. They were still trying to bind it. Jesus is the only authority. He is the only son. And Moses is only a servant. So Jesus' authority is greater than Moses. He says here, full of grace and full of truth. In other words, for this Christian dispensation, for this new covenant, all the grace and truth that God has to offer is through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is not through the Old Testament. It is not through Moses. It's through the new covenant. Jesus died to make it so. And so then, any other claims of authority are false. And there were many running around back then. There's lots of people running around today claiming certain authority. Any other claims of authority are false. Notice what Jesus said in Mark 13, 6. For many shall come in my name. What does that mean, come in my name? I know Jesus Christ. I got him right here, and I'm speaking for Jesus Christ tonight. And then he comes out with all of this doctrine of his that he's learned from some seminary or somewhere. And those who study the Bible know that it does not agree with the word of God. But somehow he's compelled to believe that for his own personal reasons. And I'm not saying that some are not sincere. Certainly some of them are. They wouldn't go to the extent that they do. But Jesus himself said, for many shall come in my name, in my authority. I am a preacher for Jesus Christ and come across like that. You've got to believe me because I'm teaching you what Jesus would have you to do. In my name, saying, look at this, even back in those days, there were false messiahs saying, I am Christ. Some of them even claimed to be the Christ and shall what? Deceive many. So many are going to go by the wayside because they are credulous believers. They want to believe. They want to believe something. But a deceiver got to them first. And it's very difficult to try to correct somebody when a deceiver has gotten there first and they are then compelled in heart to think that this is correct when it does not go with the Bible. Well, verse 14, full of grace and full of truth, the Son of God. The fullness of salvation is solely in Jesus Christ. That's where the grace is. That's where the truth is. That's where the fullness is. He alone is the true word. Now look what is obvious there. No truth, no grace. He's full of grace and truth. They go together. And you can claim all the grace you want to. But if you don't have the truth, you don't have the grace. You see? Grace and truth go together. 116, for from, for from his fullness we have all received grace for grace. If you want to read a commentary on that, you're going to find a lot of different opinions on what that means. It's, at first, when you first read it, it seems obvious. Receive grace for grace, which means that it's just grace piled on top of grace. 
that it's grace abundant, that's immeasurable, just grace upon grace. Well, I think that that's certainly getting to the truth there. But there's something else that may be there. Grace for grace, that you have received grace and now then you go spread that grace to others. Grace for grace for grace for grace on down the line. And if you're going to spread the grace, you've got to spread the truth. You've got to teach the truth. And that's what he said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go you therefore and teach. There can be no Christian that hasn't been taught. You have to be taught the truth in order to receive the grace of God. So the fullness of grace for grace. Also now, when we think of this fullness, you can go back to John, the fourth verse, where it says, he was full of life and light. So if the fullness of grace is there, grace for grace, that Jesus Christ is the fullness of life, there is no source anywhere else where you can obtain eternal life. And also light. Well, what is the light? The light, of course, is the light of truth. And if you depart from the Bible, the Word of God, as John's going to point out time and time again, you're going to be walking in darkness. And darkness is going to do everything it can to put out the light. But the Bible says here in the first chapter that the darkness could not comprehend it, could not arrest it, could not stop it. That's exactly what Jesus meant in Matthew, the 16th chapter, and verse 18, when he said, I will build my congregation, my assembly, my believers. I will build my church. And the gates of hell, though they're going to kill me, will not keep me from doing it. The irony of the whole thing, class, is the fact that when they put Jesus to death, they did the very thing that they didn't want to do. They wanted to dispose of him, get him out of the way. And say, that's it, wipe their hands and say, well, we got rid of him. But when they killed Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a minute if we get there, that they killed the very lamb sacrificed to take away their sins. They made the offering at this Passover coming up that Jesus is the lamb of God, and when they hatefully killed him, they really delivered the world who would believe his word and be saved. Isn't that a wonderful thought to think about? His grace is preferred now above law. Getting back then to the difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that Jesus died, of course, to establish the New Testament, the old law is nailed to the cross. But nevertheless, here in verse 17, he adds to what we've been talking, for the law was given through Moses. There's a difference here. Law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now somebody always waves their hand. You mean there was no grace and truth under Moses? Well, certainly there was. But Moses received the word of grace and truth, and grace and truth is now here in the flesh. So Moses received his from God, but God is here in the flesh. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we have over there on the left-hand side of the chart, Moses receiving the law at Sinai, but the law at Sinai pointed a finger at everybody and said, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're lost, you're lost. 
get out there and we'll accept these animals as a substitute sacrifice for a while. Well, that was Moses at Sinai, sin and guilt, but at the same time, it pointed to grace. It pointed to the true plan of salvation that was going to come in Jesus Christ. Read Deuteronomy 18, 18, 19. Then here, opposite of that, grace and truth came to Jesus Christ. He is grace. He is truth. So Jesus at Calvary, in distinction from sin and guilt under the old law, he is pardoned. He died for the sins of the world. And over on the other side, while that pointed to grace... Jesus was the grace. He was the gift of God, John 3 and verse 16. It seems now that grace and mercy are over the law, that grace and mercy came over law, to be preferred over the law, was, over, was pre-shattered in the most holy place in the Old Testament. For instance, <clears throat> when you're reading the Old Testament, especially the book of Exodus, when they built the tabernacle, it was divided into the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was held. It's where God had his mercy seat. But if you'll notice here, let this gold represent then the Ark of the Covenant in which the law was stored. But above the law and above the mercy seat, above the law and the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat of God. So that it seems to be preshadowed in the Old Testament even. As Jesus said here in Matthew, the 12th chapter, verse 7, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He said, if you're a disbeliever in the Son of God, you can offer all the gallons of blood that you want to. You can kill all of the sheep that you want to. It will not take away one sin. Is everybody following me? I hope so. (laughs) Uh, So Jesus said then, I'm not looking for meritorious works. That's a system, of course, that grew out of Babylon when they couldn't get back to the temple. I will have mercy upon you and not all of these animal sacrifices that you're offering. After all, Caiaphas was making a business out of that anyway. That's how bad they had become. God can be seen only through Christ's word now. This next verse, 118. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. All of these people running around here claiming that they're Christ or that they've got a special touch with God and you ought to believe them because God talked to me and gave me this message when it's contrary to Jesus Christ and the Word. No one else has any authority to speak the will of God other than the Son of God. Only the Son has the bosom relationship, intimate relationship with God to speak for him. So it's back to transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. The impact of John's testimony now Look at this. The next verse in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One day when John was baptizing, he looked up and here comes this young 30-year-old man down here, Hebrew of Hebrews. 
John recognized him, he said, the Spirit told me. And he told his disciples, says, this is the Lamb of God. Now, you see the Passover's coming up. They're going to offer lambs like they had uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement for years and years. But this time there was going to be a special lamb. This was going to be a lamb without spot and blemish. Not an animal that they looked in his wool and see if he had the sneezes or what. But this is going to be an individual that God lives in the body of that has lived a perfect life without sin. He's going to go to the sacrificial altar as the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist says this. But have you ever stopped to think about what that means? What is implied in that? When he said Jesus Christ is the Son of God that takes away the sins of the world, it meant the end of what? All animal sacrifices. No more sacrificing of animals at the altar of the temple. It meant then, if that's the case, the livelihood of the priest was gone. Because you see, they received a portion of all of these sacrifices that came and were offered. It also meant the end of the priesthood. Because if this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, you'll need no more high priest to go into a holy place here and to make uh, a prayer for your sins. Because your sins have been atoned for. The perfect Lamb of God has taken them away. And so it's going to be the end of the priesthood. Now, don't you know? Don't you know that Caiaphas really did appreciate this? Look at this one. The law. Well, if the priesthood was gone, and you can read all about this in the book of Hebrews, if the priesthood was gone, the sacrifices was gone, all these other things, then the law of Moses has been fulfilled. And that's what he's getting at. And he's laying it down to somebody says where the rubber meets the road. No wonder then the priests were the ring leaders to destroy Jesus Christ. He was destroying their uh, merchandise. He was destroying their playroom. Caiaphas had turned the sacrificial system into a business. And Jesus strode in there the week, first part of the week and was crucified on Sunday before Thursday. And he drove all the oxen out of there. And he said, you ought to, I'm paraphrasing, you ought to be ashamed you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Merchandise. Can you imagine how that sat with those people? How would you like to walk into a denominational church today and say, all of y'all are going to hell. How would that be received, you see? But that's what Jesus Christ did in the fact. He says, you've got it wrong. You've taken the temple of God and turned it into a house of thieves. Wow. If ever a person was asked to be condemned by the Sanhedrin, that was it. All right, so we've now come to a transition. The transition in ministries in the book of John. The transition from John the Baptist's ministry to Jesus Christ, the Son of God's personal ministry. And John's going to be pointing this out pretty plainly. <clears throat> to begin with, it begins with the testimony then of John. There it is. The transition starts. And they came, the Sanhedrin sent out and said, Who are you? What are you out here preaching about? Why are you preaching? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not. Well, who are you then? 
But John emphatically said, I am not the Christ. Now, regardless of this, people continued to believe that he was, clear on up to the end of the first century and a little bit past. But he was not the Christ, and his, this transition to Jesus' ministry John shows here is by John saying, I'm not the Christ. Now, it was followed by John's disciples then switching to Jesus. 138 41. A couple of John's disciples, evidently, after John had baptized Jesus and, and Jesus, John had said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, they were not gullible. They were not even willing to take John the Baptist word for it himself. So one day when Jesus was there, they said, uh, evidently Jesus started to leave, and they followed him and said, where are you going? And Jesus said, you come and see. And so then Andrew and the other disciple came and they spent the afternoon with him. Now, what does John, the author here, writing this book, want us to see? He wants us to see that they were not just gullible. They were just not Messiah seekers and going to grab the first one that comes along. They are not going to take John the Baptist, the greatest prophet under the Old Testament. They're not going to take his word alone. They want to find out for themselves. Now, listen, isn't that commendable today? Who is in the church of Christ just because their mom and daddy were, just because it's okay when you grow up to go where your mom and daddy goes, but there's coming a time when that's going to have to shift over to your own personal belief. And so then, before the personal interview, they said, Rabbi, where do you live? But when they spent the afternoon and they came away, look what they were saying. After this interview, they said, we have found the Messiah. Well, now, John wants us to see that they didn't just jump into it. Not only with that, John wants to say, this is not enough. I want you to see another one, too. And so, Jesus called Simon. He doesn't say much about this here, so we're just going to mention it and go on. But he changed his name. He said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is interpretation of stone." So this is still, though, in the transition of disciples from John the Baptist to disciples of Christ after John says, don't look at me for the Christ. I'm not the Christ. All right, the transition continues with Philip's call and testimony to Nathaniel in 145. He says here, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and of the prophets did write. Well, this is a statement just like uh, the first statement that we talked about. It is a statement that's saying to us from John, who's writing the book, see how these disciples studied and had personal interviews. Now I want to tell you about one other. And he says, look at this one. <clears throat> Nathaniel was skeptical when they said, we have found the Messiah. John still wants us to see that they just didn't jump into this. He said, they said, we found the Messiah. Well, where's he from? Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That, must, <laughs> that town must have been pretty bad. But at least Nathaniel was saying here, <laughs> don't pull the wool over my eyes. 
nothing good can come out of that town. You see, we jump to judgment too quick sometimes. Sometimes we can say, well, nothing good can come of that. If you had been standing there, and I had been standing there when they were going to crucify Jesus Christ, we might have had in the back of our mind, nothing good can come of this. And yet, 2,000 years later, you and I are in this study here tonight because good came from crucifying Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why we're here, isn't it? John wants the reader to understand these disciples were not credulous Messiah seekers. How Jesus now dissolved Nathaniel's criticism or skepticism. Well, without previous acquaintance, it's obvious in the context that they had met as friends that Nathaniel is being brought to Jesus Christ and say, hey, here's the Messiah. Don't kid me. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. But then Jesus does something. And it's so easy to read over in the text. You could miss it. But what is there? When he was walking up, when Nathaniel was walking up to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, Andrew, there comes a man in whom there is no God. In other words, he is a true Israelite. He is a man of unreproachable character. Now, he hadn't met him. Now, this, look at this. Nathaniel was stunned. And the question was, how in the world did you know anything about me? How did you know that? How did you know me, Lord? Well, he knew Nathaniel just exactly like he knows you and me. Right here sitting in these pews tonight, he knows every heartbeat that you have. He knows every thought. Somehow, I do not know, it's beyond my thinking and learning and imagination even, how that he could always know that. But it's shown here to Nathaniel, I know you inside and out. No, I never met you, but I know what you are. And since they were just meeting and hadn't had any past relationship, Nathaniel said, wow, you know, man knows me like that. And I think it has sort of a wow effect upon us when we discover how close Jesus is to us and how much he knows us inside and out. Like we get somewhere we think we're by ourselves, or we think we're in another crowd and nobody knows. Well, David thought that too, you know, in the Old Testament evidently. A man after God's own heart is given free choice. Everybody's given free choice. It doesn't make any difference how good you've been last week. It's how good you're going to be this week by the grace of God. And David, a man after own heart, committed adultery, but the reason why he could be called a man after God's own heart is because he could write something like Psalms 51. Poured his heart out to God after it happened. So people are not living above sin. All of us are sinners. But every last one of us who will turn to God and pour our heart out 
are people after God's own heart in that fashion and in that way. Okay, but there is an additional clincher here. How much time have I got here? Just a little bit. There is an additional clincher here with Nathaniel. Not only did Jesus Christ say, I know you inside and out, and Thomas, wow, you know. But he adds this. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. What do you mean you saw me under the fig tree? You don't even know me. I live down this way. You come this way. You not only know me inside and out, you know what I was doing. You know all about me. And I think that that's one of the first things in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is to understand he knows all about me and that I am a sinner and I'm ashamed. But he told Nathaniel, he was, a, he was a good man, and he says, I saw you under the fig tree here. I knew where you were. Jesus not only knew he was a true Israelite, he knew where he was and what he was doing. Nathaniel's response, since Jesus knew his heart, without his acquaintance, he was convinced. And this is what he said in verse 49. Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Well, you see, that jumps out at us. But the Jews were looking for that. The, the faithful Jews and so on, they were looking for the Messiah to come. They were looking for the kingdom to be established and the kingdom to come. And so Nathaniel, being an Israelite indeed, was a studious man. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. No doubt he'd been to the synagogue many times and heard Old Testament priests. And so when he bursts out, Thou art the Son of God, Thou art the King of Israel. You're the one we've been looking for. You see? So he is convinced of that. What was Nathaniel doing, though, under the fig tree? Permit me now to do just a bit of speculation. And I'm telling you that's what it is. But at the same time, I think I'm right. <laughs> anyway, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree that in a further conversation of Jesus Christ would convince him so that he was the Son of God? Look at this. Because I said unto thee, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me because of that? Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And I've got it in the question. Had Nathaniel been thinking about Jacob's dream under the fig tree? Do you see what I'm pointing at? Jesus said, I know you inside and out. I know you was under a fig tree. I know what you was reading. And you think that's wonderful for Jacob to see a ladder like that? Boy, you're going to see something greater than that. Wow. Can you imagine the effect that has on Nathaniel? So that's the end of chapter 1. So I'm going to let you go. Because the next we get into the wedding at Cana, and I don't want to get halfway into it. I want to do the whole thing. And so God bless you. God bless you for being here. I hope you've been edified. I hope it's been interesting. I hope I've lifted you up somewhat. And now we're going to be dismissed. Holy Father.